Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. It's Charles Marshall here and on the West Coast Foreclosure Show, which, again, every other Thursday, I'll be on with the listening audience. And today is January 18th, 2018. I am broadcasting live from Southern California. Neil Garfield will continue to broadcast his regular show on alternate Thursdays. The show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. And I have again joining me today, Bill Padalo, who I always appreciate coming on the show with me. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Good to be back. Thanks. And you uh, uncovered a, a case recently, Bill. It's a the Deutsche Bank case, and it's actually out of Texas. Now it's a judicial foreclosure case. So, and this and this particular case is the plaintiff. And to give the listeners a little bit of backstory on this, uh, this case goes back a couple of years. However, I think the holding in this case is something that could could be applied in non-judicial foreclosure states, whether those states are on the West Coast and the Ninth Circuit or not. One of the interesting things about Texas as a state is that it has significant foreclosure caseloads uh, that, are, that are handled both judicially and non-judicially, meaning there are a lot of non-judicial foreclosures in Texas. There are also a lot of judicial foreclosures. So both methods are used in Texas. In this particular case, again, is a judicial foreclosure case. What's interesting about this case is that here we are in 2018. And again, this case is, was decided 
it, it, it was decided in, in the middle of 2015. Uh, but by then, as a lot of listeners know, uh, particularly in California and other non-judicial foreclosure states, this whole issue of voidable versus void was already undercutting a lot of uh, a lot of plaintiffs in non-judicial foreclosure states. And here we had a judge in this Texas case that was really holding Deutsche Bank accountable. And he was really taking the law as it should be taken, uh, where assignments have to be proved, assignments have to be uh, endorsed, assignments have to be presented. And there were two critical issues in this case that ultimately deep six Deutsche Bank's position. And those issues had to do variously either blank endorsement of the note or in the alternative, an actual signed endorsement. And the judge was not satisfied in, in either realm and by either analysis. Um, Bill, if you would tell the listeners a bit about the case and how the judge came to his ruling. Well, well, sure. Well, first, I just want to thank all the people and the listeners out there who uh, send me a lot of information across my wire. So sometimes uh, I get a lot of uh, maybe too much credit for uh, uncovering this or that, but uh, it's really uh, a credit to all the people who um, share information and send this uh, these types of documents to me that I get to see and and review and share with again Neil and all you listeners. So I really appreciate um, all the shared information and the continued support. Um, so this is one of those cases that came uh, across my desk, and uh, it was as I was telling you earlier, just before the start of the show. You know, it's it's very reminiscent of some of the very early rulings that came out uh, right. You know, at, at the onset of the uh, the crash, where um, the very first foreclosure cases that would come in, the judges would actually analyze it and 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 hold the uh, bank or servicer's feet to the fire by proving their uh, evidence in their case and uh, would call it like it is, just like we have right here. Uh, and so it's it's kind of refreshing, and it, it still provides a ray of hope that at this stage of the game, or at least in 2015 when this came down, that we're we're getting a really good, sharp analysis um, on a case in which really mirrors the vast majority of all of these securitization cases across the board. I mean, the same um, set of facts uh, typically exists um, for the most part in all all of these cases. And so what what's really important uh, that jumps out on this case, and for people that are now uh, or currently in litigation or uh, have litigation in the future, maybe not so many of those that um, have already uh, gone down in flames over the last few years. Um, but in most of these cases, you will have a situation where a note is a, is presented at some point in a, an initial litigation or bankruptcy proceeding that does not have the endorsement of any sort on it. And then later it comes to find you, you get that traditional ta-da, last-minute endorsement. And uh, what's really uh, interesting here in this case is that, <clears throat> you know, Deutsch uh, tries to come in 
in the late stages and tries to you know misrepresent the record and, and slip a new note into the proceeding and this judge wasn't going to have anything to do with it and this judge put Deutsch on notice and telegraphed and said essentially if you are going to come in with that argument then you're going to have to come in with some testimony or evidence to authenticate uh, the note and the endorsement upon it so here Deutsche had plenty of time uh, to come up with that evidence but clearly they did not do so and this is what we've been saying all along there's no witness uh, who will come in or could come in and attest to when these unendorsed uh, or when the endorsements are placed on these notes by whom when or any of the facts surrounding that they they, they will not do that because as we well know that these endorsements are being slapped on uh, in per for purposes of litigation. So here the judge holds the, their feet to the fire on this, and I think this is a, an important uh, way to posture uh, challenging or posture your position in challenging these folks uh, by saying, listen, the original note I signed, wherever that is, the note I signed did not have an endorsement on it. Or I'm going to challenge that endorsement because there is one that's been presented without an endorsement on it, creating that issue of fact uh, to force the other side to explain itself and all the facts surrounding that. And here it, it, it's the, um, the Burke's attorney vehemently made the right objections to, uh, to what they were trying to just slip in the record like they always do without any you know, evidentiary support, and the judge, again, held their feet to the fire. Now, there's a couple of interesting footnotes um, on this case that I, I find kind of interesting, and one is that in the oral arguments um, in this case, Deutsch's counsel came in and asserted that the note was registered on the MERS system, and were claiming that... Um, the note and the sales of the note is transferred uh, and tracked through the system, and that's what regarding the note. Now, I'm, I'm gathering more and more information and more evidence to show that uh, these notes were destroyed and electronically converted into e-notes. And what's an <laughs> and, and what's interesting when you look at the MERS business model and kind of how flawed and defective it is is that it relies on so many people to enter information uh, manually on the sales and transfers of the stuff and that it, it's not reliable. And the court points out here, it says, Deutsche's Bank's failure to offer any such readily available chain of title evidence from the MERS registry is therefore especially telling. If those records supported the bank's claim, they presumably would and should have been presented to this court a long time ago. So, uh, so here they're trying to get away with just saying, well, they're, the, the notes registered in MERS and the transfers and sales are registered in MERS. But again, they just they just kind of leave it at that, and the court says, no, I'm not. You know, that's not enough. You failed to to prove your side. But also. What's really uh, wonderful about this case is that the court starts to, to really dig into the assignment and MERS's position as an agent and really starts tearing into that and saying, look, the borrower, uh, you know, of course, the banks come in, and as you well know, Charles, and says you have no challenge or standing to challenge the assignments. But this court is saying, well, wait a minute. In the, in the absence, uh, it, it's the absence of a valid assigner 
being a, a real entity owning the right to be assigned in the first place, that is a critical issue here. So here in this case, you have uh, an IndyMac, a failed institution, and you have a late MERS assignment. And this court is saying, wait, you, you know, if that entity is dead, of course, you know, you've got a big problem there. Um, one more point, and I'll let you uh, uh, chime in here a little bit, Charles, but one of the sure. other really great uh, comments here is, uh, I love the court says, nothing in the record negates the possibility that the rights to the Burke note and or deed of trust were transferred to a non-member of MERS with whom MERS has no principal agent relationship. That is really important, especially when it comes to securitization, because the, most of these uh, transactions that involve the depositors and these parties in the ABC, you know, alphabet chain of title, most of those parties were not MERS members. And so when you have a late assignment years after the fact, having MERS trying to assign it directly into the trust, this court is saying, wait a minute here, it's recognizing that there were possibly transfers to non-MERS members, and that means MERS lost its agent relationship. That's critical, I think. What do you think? Uh, I agree with you, and it's, it is striking the way the judge has put the burden on Deutsch to actually come forward with detailed uh, proof of assignment and proof of the endorsement that uh, prefaces the assignments, essentially, that would come later. And particularly in non-judicial foreclosure cases, this kind of analysis is, is just being either glossed over by much of the judiciary or they're, they're flipping the burden because, of course, in the, in the non-judicial context, the burden is on the plaintiff to come forward with preliminary evidence of, of wrongdoing or illegality. And by using the plaintiff doesn't have standing argument that we've so often seen, and even after Ivanova, we still see, particularly where the property has not gone to auction, so-called pre-foreclosure cases, that's still a high bar in a lot of these cases. And this is kind of highlighting one advantage of judicial foreclosure as much as those cases are even more of a burden for homeowners in some ways because they absolutely have to muster a defense and find a decent attorney to keep themselves from being, you know, essentially railroaded and then thrown out of their homes with minimal legal procedure, at least with an attorney when they're on the defense and they're sued. They, they have a shot at a day at court. I think this was a well-litigated case. I think these, you know, these homeowners did get their day in court. And the right decision was, was, was essentially rendered by using proper and formal interpretations of agency law and now an endorsement in blank and or another type of endorsement has to have proper evidentiary authority. I mean, do you, do you think this is something that could be used in a non-judicial foreclosure setting, particularly through discovery? 
Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, even another really great nugget out of here is uh, the court says there's yet another fatal flaw in Deutsche Bank's proof under Texas law. Even if some entity had been shown to be a quote-unquote successor or a sign to the original lender, nothing in this record proves that MERS was a nominee or agent for that particular entity. They've been getting away with murder on that one forever, where they come in and just say MERS executes it for a successor and a signs, or in this case, they, they try to make assumptions of these mergers between, you know, uh, IndyMac Bank and One West, or, you know, you take any of them. You take Bank of America's mergers with BAC, Home Loan Servicing, all of this stuff, where they use successor and assigns. And this bank says there's nothing in the record to prove nominee agent for even the, the successor and assigns. So it's, it's really going deep and not making any presumptions on this. And, and if that's the case, uh, if they were, let's say, if, if this case were reopened or if that were to be litigated, I mean, uh, and they were forced to cough up or on a compel motion or something of that nature to explain these mergence, uh, uh, mergers or, uh, you know, uh, the agencies between these parties, if they were forced, they don't have it. They absolutely don't have it. And, uh, and, that's, and that, that's why this court says it's very telling. A lot of this stuff, this court sniffed it out right away and just uh, and knows that, uh, look, you, everything that you come in here with all your paperwork and, and your positions on this stuff, you have nothing beneath the surface to support it by way of evidence or testimony by anybody. And, you know, that's, that's the same the same MO in every one of these cases, Charles. Um, if, if you're allowed to get into discovery and you're allowed to challenge this stuff um, and the court is going to you know, ask the same questions, uh, I think the homeowners would win every single time, just like they did here in this Burke case. I mean, I see, I see some, some applicability of this case along the lines of of what you're suggesting. I think in California, for example, we would have to move the judiciary off of this kind of whack-a-mole scenario with MERS where they're allowed to be essentially at the same time, uh, be in a position where they can claim nominee status and some sort of sleight of hand, almost beneficiary status at the same time when clearly they can only be a nominee and not a beneficiary. And yet, again, they sort of elide the distinction. And for the most part, courts have signed off on allowing this, this kind of sleight of legal hand so that they end up being legitimized as an intermediary. And uh, I think the other thing that's striking about this opinion is, you know, it seems like this is an old school judge and that, he not only knows the law, but he, 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 knows, how to, he knows how to write as well. Uh, one of the things that I was most struck by in this opinion is the following. Quote, after four years of litigation, including court-ordered mediation and trial on the merits, the time for such a de ex machina maneuver has long since passed. Burks are entitled to the finality of judgment that our judicial process is intended to provide, the bank's request for a do-over do is denied, unquote. Because just to give a little bit of 
you know, more perspective about the dynamics here to the listeners of this particular ruling came on the heels of it's a motion in Texas to amend the ruling that had already transpired. So they, they took the case to trial in a judicial foreclosure. They lost a trial based on their failure to prevent probative specific evidence, real evidence of either an actual endorsement of the note or even how and why a blank endorsement has been specifically arranged. In other words, they had to bring in some proof of authentication, and they didn't do that. Nothing that would, would, would meet evidentiary standards. And it's, it's just very impressive the way the judge knows the law, knows agency law, follows it very cleanly and precisely, and also follows the threads and logic of his own opinion. Well, he, he goes he goes one step further, and he says that, uh, you know, quote, this absence of documentary proof mirrors the lack of any testimonial evidence of holder status. Given its utter failure of proof, Deutsche Bank's continuing assertion of a right to foreclose as a holder of the note is not just groundless, it is frivolous. So... He's calling it out and saying, listen, you've been put on notice, and you keep coming back for a bite at the apple, and you're ignoring uh, the, the evidence that I'm asking and requesting that I've told you I want to see. Um, clearly, you must not have it. And so, therefore, you're continuing to press this and to prosecute this in light of, in spite of any evidence, is frivolous. And I'll t- and. So I, this, I, that's what I would say in, in every one of these foreclosure cases with these, with these types of situations. Um, the other side should be attacked severely on this as being frivolous until they produce some hard evidence. Yes, I mean, it's striking that this opinion didn't get reversed, didn't get put down, so to speak, and you know, the analysis in it, I'd love to see it applied in a lot of different contexts and in a lot of different places. And I think, you know, as we were, you and I were both mentioning, the discovery vehicle was one way for that to happen. Uh, I wanted to touch briefly, this is a topic I'd actually like to get into more detail in a future show. Uh, but there's, some interesting things going on in the uh, the mortgage insurance world as well. Um, you know, these guarantees behind a note that essentially pay off a presumed or alleged defaults. Uh, there's something involving a group called Radeon that uh, – you recently brought to my attention. If you could tell listeners a bit about that and some of the remaining minutes we have. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I'm just working a case where, you know, a letter from 2009 came across the radar um, uh, in discovery uh, where Radiant Guarantee Corp uh, kind of pops its head out of the weeds and sends a letter to the borrower and says that, you know, Countrywide Home Loans made us aware that you're, you know, behind in your payments or whatever, and we, we're just letting you know that we're an insurance carrier 
that Countrywide took out a policy, um, and you can tell by the letter, and we'll probably post this here soon, um, that the policy pertains to certificates. So it's one of these credit enhancement deals that the securitizers took out to, to uh, protect the cash flows in the event of default uh, to the certificate holders. But anyhow, Radian, you know, pokes its head out of the weeds and says, listen, uh, uh, borrower, um, if you want to be considered for a modification, send us your documents, and here's what we're looking for. And they also come out and disclose that, or at least tell the borrower that we have a financial interest in your uh, loan, which is uh, out of the blue because I'm not seeing any assignments or endorsements of the debt or the security instruments whatsoever to an insurance carrier. So how they step in and claim that they have a financial interest and a stake here um, is really what we've suspected all along with a lot of these hidden insurance uh, policies that were written. But they also notice uh, to the homeowner and disclose at the bottom that they're a debt collector and they're, they're attempting to collect a debt on the homeowner. Well, my question when I sent that over to you and Neil this morning and I posed to you as the attorneys is, listen, how can uh, an insurance carrier with no con contractual connection to the borrower uh, suddenly be pressuring and uh, deciding modifications and intervening with a homeowner when there's no evidence of, of how they have any rights to or uh, via assignment to the debt? I know, which is an excellent question, uh, because this really does come back to agency law, assignment law 101. This, this uh, whole scenario here, of course, involves real property. And the only way to have a legal interest in real property is there has to be some kind of written assignment, essentially, whether it's recorded or not. And yes, in California and in a lot of other states, the recording of the assignment is only required in certain contexts. However, again, law 101 even, not just agency law 101, uh, any legal interest related to a property has to be in writing. Statute of fraud. It must be in writing. It must be signed to be valid. So if there is an assignment of interest, even if it's a residual interest, even if it's, let's say, a servicing interest, where either countrywide or some servicer acting on behalf of countrywide or some other you know, securitized trust in the background. Some other entity assigns servicing rights for the purpose of, let's say, collecting on the debt. Absent that written assignment, the, this insurer should not be representing any debt collection role at all. And what's interesting is this, this particular uh, kind of disclaimer that is at the bottom of this letter it, it does indicate to me that Radeon, you know, their attorneys are, we, we might even say, legitimately concerned with showing their compliant with, you know, the FDCPA. However, they don't need to be talking about compliance with the FDCPA if they're not a debt collector. And they can't just finesse the legal issue of whether they are a debt collector. Uh, in, in such a way that they might say later, well, you know, we were doing due diligence and we were being 
overly cautious to ensure that we weren't taken as a debt collector. Uh, no, I don't even think that's the right analysis here. I think the right analysis is they should not be invoking this disclaimer unless they really are a debt collector. And they're not unless there's a written assignment from one of these other entities in, in, in this whole backdrop uh, related to this whole loan situation. So I well, the, you're in, the policies yeah, that I'm looking at and I've seen, way. Charles, they're uh, clearly orchestrating and calling the shots behind the scenes um, covertly without any disclosure. And so, uh, you know, what's really puzzling to me is here all these people are applying for modifications and and you know it's not they don't they're not even being told who the who the real party is that's making those decisions uh you know well, they're exactly. getting into their servicer yeah. but apparently like in this case they actually came out and admitted it but it's an insurance carrier is going to consider a mod they're, they're not even they're not even the servicer uh on right. that note uh, on that note bill uh i'll have to uh Say adieu for now to our audience and to yourself. Uh, we've come to the end of our uh, our time again on this show, and uh, we will be back in two weeks. And let's uh, let's continue the struggle in the meantime. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations,